0: I had an architect tell me that if a builder says to you they're building the code, I wouldn't buy the house from them, because the idea of building something should be how it's going to last into the future.
1: You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky.
2: And I'm Rudy Salo.
1: And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of living a more knowledgeable life, a good life, a self-improved life.
2: Today, we talk about home improvement, but hear us out here. It's not HGTV all of a sudden. What we're really talking about is climate change impact on our homes and our environment and where we live. And our guest today is George Siegel of the Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. And on this episode, we talk about his documentary the last house standing where George does an analysis of some major hurricanes that hit Florida and some major wildfires that hit California and talked about how some houses withstood it and other houses didn't like and we talked about like well, how like how were those houses built what were the zoning laws that applied like what happened there like how did those houses survive and we also give some tips about thinking about the future of home ownership, the future of paying off your mortgage. And is that actually a good idea considering how crazy our climate is? I mean, look at our winter out here in California and who knows what our summer is going to be wildfire wise. I mean, this is a really interesting episode about what the future of living in home ownership is going to be.
1: Yeah. And in terms of the more knowledgeable life, this is essential. I learned a lot because the role of risk, the role of insurance. And really all of this stuff is so important. And one of the things I really liked about this interview with George and talking about his documentary, which by the way, we will link in the show notes, everyone watch it. It's really, really great. It's super informative, but that he is interviewing people from the government, people who understand weather, people who understand climate, And also the people who have survived the devastation of losing their homes. And to me, that last part was real because it made me think about the importance of the structure of our homes, that it's not just a building but it represents so much of how we envision our lives and the good life. And it is important to understand how to protect it and how to build it well. And it can cost some money in the beginning. It doesn't necessarily have to be a ton of money, but it can cost some money and it is worth it if you have an understanding of risk and the role that the government plays and the role that you are obliged to play in protecting this home that is not just a building. It represents so much more of a vision of how you want to be and live in the world.
2: Yeah. And we- talk about something else about how i mean and in the movie as well right the devastation on a community right it talks about yeah there's your home but your home is a part of a community you're a part of a community when a community gets wiped out what happens i mean it's a very very interesting episode to think it's yes i would slot this into our finance you know there are bare minimums right building code standards are at the bare minimum this is the minimum that you have to build your house at that's really analyzed in george's film but you're more than welcome to build better. And George is all about building better for lasting impact. And we, we, we discuss a couple of other things about climate change impact on local government. I reference um, our good friend Liz Farmer's podcast a couple of times, The Public Money Pod. I, I was on The Public Money Pod. I was on George's podcast. Some really very impactful discussions occur on this episode. And quite frankly, a little scary. Because this is a a new reality, and I'm really hoping that people will rewire their brains and, and think about how they want to build their homes and be a part of their community and be involved in local government going forward.
1: Right. The climate does not care about your political standing. It does not care. This is really about, okay, this is the reality. Now, what are we going to do about this? This is a solution-oriented documentary that I think is really powerful. And yeah, I appreciate George's work. Rudy, what are we going to call this?
2: I've been thinking about this. I'm glad you asked that. I've been thinking about calling this one, The Climate is Above Politics with George Siegel.
1: All right, let's go for it. The Climate is Above Politics with George Siegel.
2: Today we've got George Siegel. He is of the Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. This is one of our phenomenal cross-podcasts. We're going to focus on his fantastic documentary, The Last House Standing. You could tackle this question one of two ways. Who are you? Why did you make this film?
0: Well, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Flash podcast host, former television uh, weatherman, newscaster, done a bunch of different things. But a theme wherever I've lived and wherever I've worked is people that are wiped out by disasters every year. And I find it heartbreaking when I've had to cover those stories and see what's happened to those people. And it keeps happening year after year. So when I moved to Florida, now I'm in a bullseye area for disasters. We've dodged a couple of major hurricanes here since we've lived here. And the reality is, Every place is vulnerable in Florida to getting wiped out. And it made me think, what's the goal with a house to be the last house standing? You don't want your house to fall apart. You know, I was going to call it the third pig because I love the three little pigs, right? The pig in the brick house is the one that survives and the other two go running to him. So I wanted to make a film that was about that, to warn people about disasters, to show them that you have to be your own best advocate and think about what you need to do to survive because nobody's going to do that for you better than you can do it for yourself. That's why I made the film and, and then all of a sudden the Mexico beach Hurricane Michael happened in 2018 and we steamed the, the film around that house that survived on the beach and that house is a testament to how you can build not everybody can afford to build like that but there are always things you can do to build a better
2: house and that's definitely going to be one of the themes that I want to talk about during this podcast is personal responsibility versus governmental you know regulation you know minimum standards well you know here are the minimums Should the government just raise those standards, or should you just take it upon yourself because you want the last house standing? But I got a question for you before we get to there. I'm sure that'll come through here. You had some phenomenal guests in the movie. I mean, you had somebody from FEMA. You had the mayors of these towns that have been wiped out. You covered Malibu very well, the Malibu catastrophe, the wildfires. What was the process of making this film? like? Did you just make the decision, I'm going to make this film and then you just gathered all these people. But please tell us what the process was like.
0: The process is really the toughest part. You know, going out with a crew, if you have any experience, is easy to go out and do an interview. It's easy to arrange how to get there and all that stuff. But getting people is extremely challenging. Getting into FEMA to do an interview is almost impossible because everybody blasts them all the time, they roll into a disaster. They're automatically getting criticized if they park the truck in the wrong place. I mean, they're, you're hitting people at their lowest point. So nobody's going to be happy under any circumstances. And now here comes FEMA. So they get criticized all the time. And Brock Long was the FEMA director at the time. And I had to, i probably took me over a year to get them to do it. And eventually we got in. And when I sat down, the PR person came in and looked at me and said, How the hell did you get in here? (laughs) They didn't even know. Like, why did we let a filmmaker in here? What are you going to say nasty about FEMA? But Brock is a straight shooting guy. And I told him, look, I'm not using FEMA as a villain here. I want to talk about how FEMA can work with people to avoid disasters. We want to talk about proactive thinking. And they loved that suggestion. Brock is a proactive thinking guy who cares about those kind of things. And so we were able to sit down and talk to him and he was fantastic. The other guy in there that was really hard to get was Hank Ovink. He's the water ambassador from the Netherlands who President Obama brought in after Hurricane Sandy. And that guy is the busiest guy in the world. I mean, Hank is tough to get. It took a year and a half to get. And eventually we got him too. And, And those are the great feelings when you can get people like that, that are so busy, but you can squeeze them in into their day. And they ended up being huge parts of the film. And then all the other people, they weren't easy to get, but they were so knowledgeable and so helpful. And and it all fell together pretty good.
2: You touched upon something that I, I think is really important in that you said it took a year and a half to get this nailed down this person. It took a year and a half to nail down that person. The process of making a film is very long. So would you if anybody was out there and they were thinking about whether they're making a fiction film or a non-fiction film, obviously you're a filmmaker. I would imagine that you would tell them, "Well, look, here's what you think it's going to take and then it's going to take 50% longer. You better be passionate about this project. Otherwise, don't do it." Do you, is that fair advice to give to budding filmmakers?
0: I think that would be fair. You know, there's some that some people take out and make a documentary short, they take a camera out and they shoot something. I mean, it all really depends on what you're trying to capture. And what the message is you're trying to get, if there's a lot of elements and pieces involved, it takes a lot longer, you know, and then you have to say, okay, what kind of equipment am I going to shoot it with? Because depending on where you want to air it, if you want to try to get your film on Netflix or Amazon Prime, you have to have it a certain quality. Uh, I think it might be 4K, some kind of quality now shot with a certain camera. They give you a list of cameras they accept. So if you're walking around with your iPhone, which is pretty amazing. We had a few iPhone shots in the film that I got. But if you then take that to those places, they can reject you because you don't meet their standard that they want for airing their films. So there's a lot of things involved. When you watch credits at the end of a film and you see 200 names, there's a reason for that. There's a lot of things people can do. When you're a small crew like me, you see maybe 15 names because we don't have the budget for that kind of stuff. So you have to get people that are passionate that work hard. My editor was also a videographer. He flew the drone. My chief of photography or videography also was great at helping produce things on the fly and. I hire people that can think and make things better. We always joke about whose idea was it. Nobody cares when we work together. It's like, we care about the project. It doesn't really matter whose idea it was. You don't get a gold star for that. You know, you just,
2: you want the best product. You mentioned one of the primary focuses of the, uh, of the film, the one that occurred in 2018, Hurricane Michael, was it? Mm-hmm. And there was also the Malibu fires. Now, I hate to say this, but those are kind of old news, catastrophe-wise, and sure. kind of brings me up to my next point. Since the release of this film, there have been additional climate catastrophes that have occurred in Florida as well elsewhere, you know, like Tahoe fire, a whole bunch of fires, everything that's been going on. Had there been any movement in the right direction towards more resilient building slash implementing beyond just standard building codes? And how has the supply chain inflationary impact of building materials affected things towards that movement? Do you have any data on that?
0: Well, that's kind of a three-pronged answer. The first thing is when you say those are old disasters. Coming out in in my podcast, I don't know when this is going to air, but I go back and interview the mayor of Malibu. And since 2018, when his house burned down, it still hasn't been rebuilt. It's not, his life isn't back together. I think they've only rebuilt 100 homes in Malibu. Because it's really tough to get your life back together after a disaster. So our thinking is, okay, other disasters happen, and that's the problem. People forget about the ones that happen, and those people are a long way from normal. They have a long road back from where they are. Now, the question about are we building better? Some of the early studies I've heard about from down in Fort Myers and Sanibel, the areas in southwest Florida that got wiped out last uh, hurricane season, is the newer buildings held up pretty good. The older buildings tend to get wiped out. Now, storm surge is the great equalizer. You can have a great building that has a lot of great features, but if you get a 20-foot storm surge, all bets are off on what might happen. And I haven't seen the data on that, but it'd be interesting to see that. And we're starting another film soon. and, And that's certainly something we're going to take a look at because that's important. People need to see, look, if you build to this level, you have a better chance of surviving than if you don't. Now, as far as all the problems in rebuilding, all the supply chain issues, you know, even on new construction for a house, I see some houses sitting for months waiting to get stuff. Now, imagine your house gets wiped out And you're trying to do that. But that interjects a whole other thing. When you hear Mayor Jefferson, former Mayor Jefferson's story, Zuma Jay, his insurance company just flat out refused to pay his claim because he didn't have a mortgage. So they had nobody to, you know, he had nobody on his side with deep pockets to say you have to pay. And he still hasn't gotten paid by them. So, you know, people watch those TV commercials where Jake from State Farm or Allstate, you're in good hands. Their goal is not to pay you when there's a disaster
2: you know it's it's so interesting about this because it actually it actually goes to one of the tenets of personal finance and and philosophy of personal finance right so there's a lot of gurus out there that say zero debt no debt get rid of your debt pay off your house fine that's fine go pay off your house but there's implications of you owning your house outright that you just touched upon if there is a big national bank that holds a mortgage over your house and they're collectively arguing on behalf of of a disaster impacted individuals, you bet your butt the insurance companies are probably going to listen a little bit more uh, uh, as opposed to somebody that owns their house outright. I've heard that as one of the arguments of, hey, maybe you shouldn't pay off your house. What's your thinking on that?
0: Well, he- hearing his story, yeah, sure. That I would say, why would you want to do that? I guess it all depends on interest rates. You know, if you had one of those 1% or 2% loans, you're feeling pretty good. But it, now with a variable rate, you'd be paying more than maybe you could afford. So there's all kinds of risks involved as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. The sad part is the little guy is always going to be up against it in a disaster fighting against the big guys. It's kind of a not really relevant to that story. But years ago, I had a company where we made a logo and I got a letter from Best Buy out of the blue. And everybody knows who Best Buy is. And they said, your logo is too similar to ours. You need to stop using it. And I had spent several hundred dollars creating that logo and it looked nothing like theirs. So I called up my attorney and he goes, you absolutely are in the right. Ours looks nothing like theirs and I go so what do I do and he goes change your logo and I said why am I changing my logo he goes because you'll never afford to be able to you can't afford to fight them they'll do this just to make an example out of you because they can and that's the way the big industry works towards the little guy it's like if you could step on somebody and crush them along the way you might just scrape your shoe on the grass but you're not going to think about what you just did that's our lives that they're crushing and it's very painful and I hate to see stories like that and I'm not you know I'm not anti-corporations but the little guy usually is the one that's going to get screwed
2: no i i mean i would i i wouldn't take the film being anti-corporation in any way shape or form this that would your your little tidbit just triggered some uh, like a personal finance discussion that i've had with actually a guest on the show uh, mark farley where we've talked about the pros and cons of paying off a mortgage and so hearing your story actually parlays into something that he has always said like dude we live in california like if you have a relatively you know, new 30-year mortgage and it's at a low interest rate, do you really want to pay that off early? Because chances are, and you even talk about this in your film, chances are there's going to be a major earthquake in the next 30 years. I mean, really. I mean, every year that we don't have a major one, it increases the, increases the possibility. So just thinking about that in your own personal situation, actually on that point, one of the great points of the film, George, is there are things you can do. Right, there's retrofitting your house. In the Malibu example, you had people who got wiped out, and then you also had people who had an action plan in the place and were able to save their their houses. Right, there was that differentiator in the film. Insurance, making sure that you actually are fully insured up. I mean, I think the FEMA director talked about that a a fair amount. Like that was one of his major points was make sure that you have the insurance. in, In the film, Torch, they refer to it as being just a couple hundred dollars a year. And this kind of parlays into one of the questions that I sent to you. As a result of these catastrophes happening over and over in Florida, my understanding of the way Florida is, a fair amount of insurance companies just won't do business there anymore. And there's the state-funded insurance arm, if you will, that people can buy into the state-owned you know, owned policy. But I've also read that as more and more people purchase that state-run policy there's clauses in that state policy that the, those costs must be spread amongst all policyholders. So there's this assessment kind of a mechanism within there. So I'm just curious, obviously in the film, one of the messages, get as much insurance as possible, but in Florida with the even more catastrophes, can you speak to what's it like getting insurance in Florida today?
0: Absolutely. It's very challenging and it's very expensive and it can go up depending on if you've had prior claims and what what's gone on with your house. And if you're talking about spreading the risk, that's a problem for a lot of people because let's say you choose to live in a house right on the beach and your house is at sea level and there's a storm surge potential of 15 to 20 feet. Why am I paying for that if I live 20 miles inland? Because you're stupid enough to live there or lucky enough to live there, I'll say lucky enough, that you had the opportunity to do that. So people take risks and they want to be able to afford it, but other people shouldn't have to pay for that. That's your risk. You're choosing to do that. If you make that choice, I'm not saying you should be on your own. I want you to get insurance and I want you to be safe in the disaster, but I don't want it to be my responsibility to pay for it. And I think that's what happens too much in society now. People think that it's everybody's responsibility. It it may take a village to raise a child. It doesn't take a village to own your house. You know, go find a house someplace safe and it shouldn't be everybody else's problem.
1: This episode of Good is in the Details is brought to you by Avonmore Inc., Avonmore Bridge Tallies. Do you play bridge or do any of your friends? You got to check out avonmoreinc.com. They have everything you need for your next bridge party. Cards, tallies, custom coasters, and smart color playing cards, which are also great for kids. Check out Avonmore Inc. in the show notes to get your set of bridge tallies and playing cards today. Good Is In The Details is partnered with Newsly. It's that all-in-one super app for AOS and Android. You can get all of your news, have everything read to you in a natural human voice. Check out articles on documentaries, climate science, transportation, infrastructure, and philosophy. Check out the offer code, the details, to get one month free premium subscription. And now back to the show.
2: Gwen, what are your thoughts on that point?
1: One of the things i had been wondering as I was watching was insurance and these claims of get insured, get insured. And then I was just wondering, how is that even possible when there is a disaster? What happens to the insurance companies? If everybody hypothetically did have insurance, how does that work? I was just wondering of the practicality of that. How do you cover everybody in a massive, let's say, earthquake, fires? Because I think that with the fires in California, that there was something about some insurance companies that were just wanting to pull out and saying these are uninsurable areas for homes, which means that people who have homes would have lost all of their value because they cannot get insured. So how do you sell that house if you even want to move somewhere? Who's going to buy a house that you can't even insure. So my question was about how does the insurance work? Like hypothetically, if everyone did have insurance and that whole area is wiped out, how does everybody get the money from the insurance? Or am I just completely naive and insurance companies have lots and lots of money that could cover that?
0: Well, some of them do. Some of them have a lot of money. So you have to be careful of who you go with. You know, some people will go, well, that was the only policy I could afford. It was a really good price. That's not always a good thing because you think, why am I paying for this? People get mad because they're paying a certain amount each month. And then if nothing happens, they think they wasted that money. It's when the disaster comes, maybe you're paying a little more. Like I'm paying a lot more for homeowners insurance right now than I want to. I can't, could not get a good deal. But I know the company I'm using will be there if there's a disaster. I know they're going to have the, the money, they have the reputation, and they'll take care of it, at least I hope. So that's the challenge is you want to have a company that's legitimate. You know, I, I know people that do that on health insurance. I know one friend of mine said, yeah, I have this plan. It's got a $9,000 deductible. It's like, wow. You know, okay, that's great if you get cancer or something, but it's that day-to-day stuff. And, you know, he did that because he was healthy. And I said, you're not buying insurance because you're healthy. You're buying insurance because you might get sick. It's called insurance. And that's what people need to take seriously and really understand. The people in the film, uh, where they could have had insurance for a few hundred bucks. They were in Houston for Hurricane Harvey. And they did not live in a flood zone. If you're not in a flood zone, flood insurance is very inexpensive. And you could they could have got it for two, three, four hundred bucks. And that could have made the difference between them getting back something or getting nothing. So there's always steps along the way that you have to make a value judgment on. And maybe paying for that insurance is more important than the, the family trip that you're gonna take or the new car you wanted to buy. It sucks to have to make those choices. I don't like when I have to do that. But you have to look at the victims in disasters and go, do I want to end up like that? Do I want to go through that? Statistically, some people never recover from those things. It's a life-altering thing. And if it's not life-altering, it could take five to 10 years. The media's moved on. Everybody's talking about the next tragic disaster. But those people's lives are still hell. And there's people in Mexico Beach that haven't rebuilt yet. There's people in Malibu that haven't rebuilt. I know some people roll their eyes and go, well, Malibu. There's a lot of people in Malibu that aren't wealthy. They had legacy homes in the canyons that were passed down from generations. And, you know, that house might have been bought for $50,000, $100,000 60 years ago. Well, now it might cost $4 million to rebuild that house. Those people are in big trouble.
1: Something I really appreciated about your film was that it was interlacing some of the science with climate change You've also got and, and weather patterns that this is going to be hitting us more frequently and for longer. And that science was really interesting to me. Then there's a bit of the actual structuring stuff, but then the interviews, you know, Rudy talked about some of the experts, but the interviews with the people who had survived this loss, that was also really important because it really showed that it's not just about a structure. The structure represents Part of a community, a hope, a dream, a stability, place where memories are, and that it really, Mm. by interviewing the people who had suffered this loss, it really drove home the point of the significance of what a home means to somebody. And all I could think about as I was watching it is, what do you do the next day, the next week? Like I'm imagining an earthquake, and if my place is leveled, and then you know I'm a professor, then that means my students. Like I don't go to work. My students are probably in the same position, which means then how do I get paid? When does that all get fixed? Then there's the emotional trauma of having survived that, or maybe knowing people who didn't survive it. There is just so much to think about with your film. I just really, really appreciate it. What was it like interviewing the people who had survived?
0: You know, it's tough. It's tough because you're talking to people in their probably their lowest moment. And those people were gracious enough to speak with us and share their story. And I always appreciate that. I'm, I'm not one of those pushy people that will go shove a mic in somebody's face. You know, if you want to sit down and talk about it, I, I would love to learn about your story. And, you know, it's not a rich person's story. It's not a poor person's story. Whatever you have is yours. And if you lose it and you can never get it back, that's a tragic thing for you. And when you wake up in, a, in the morning and Mrs. Carradine was telling us, one of the people that house burned in the fire, All of a sudden, she had no makeup. She had nothing to, you know, you have nothing, literally nothing. And it's that helpless feeling that is just it's so sad and it was very tough to to hear that
1: can I ask what can I because this is gonna be a legal thing Rudy like this is something I think I texted you last night this is like my midnight thought after watching your film George and I don't know again I don't know if this is naive or not I definitely am in favor of people making decisions about their purchases and I think that there is this question now with these disasters about the responsibility of politicians and government because it is just so big so something that was, on my mind was the mayor in the panhandle in florida saying we have a 3 million dollar budget but to clear out the debris is 50 million and i was just thinking about the consequence that it's no longer about a personal decision if your personal decision is contributing to a 50 million dollar cleanup then it that personal that there needs to be something else going on that's that's what i was thinking i mean if my starbucks coffee has a caution this is hot label on it. Then I'm wondering about what are the laws about selling somebody a home and not really giving them enough information or consent. I guess I would put it that way in buying it. And in the same way, when I purchase a car and I can purchase pretty much whatever kind of car I want, as long as it's not a danger to somebody else, but I don't get to decide if it has seatbelts. I don't get to make that decision be like, you know what? I don't want to pay more for that. So I can buy whatever, pretty much there's whatever kind of car I want, you know, whatever I feel fabulous in, but the government does play a role in terms of you cannot have something that is hazardous because you don't pay for the road. You don't pay for, or your tax dollars are partly what pays for the police department. So if there is an issue, it's not just a matter of you anymore and your thing. If there is a disaster you're on roads that you are contributing to with taxpayer that other people pay for. And same thing with departments and fire departments. Why isn't that same mentality, let's say like in Oklahoma, about the standard of the home and the tornado safety? Why are these features that people can decide whether or not they want as opposed to something like seatbelts and cars?
0: You're right. You know, you. But, but you could go out and get the five-star crash rated vehicle. You're driving down the street and you get pancaked by a, a, a tanker truck. That car's not going to save your life maybe at that point. And that's what some disasters are like. You could do everything right okay. and still have something go wrong. In places like Oklahoma, they absolutely should be building safer. And that's why more Oklahoma changed the rule or the law and they made certain codes tougher. And it's actually saving houses. Now it saves houses that are not in the bullseye of the, of the tornado, but maybe, you know, half a mile to the left, half a mile to the right, because those houses were getting damaged badly by. Tornadoes, too, but the builder in there made a, a good point. He goes, Yeah, if it was optional, people wouldn't do it. They would choose the granite countertop over having the garage that's not going to blow in and have your house destroyed. And that's insane to me that people do that. There's people right down the street from me that live on the water, Tampa Bay, and they're building wood on the second floor of their house. And it's like, Why are you doing that? Why are they allowed to do that? And they say, Oh, it's safe. You know, it's safe. They could know how to build them. It's not as safe as concrete. Why are they not building concrete houses? If you can afford a $7 million house on the water, you can afford a $7,050,000 house on the water to put concrete on the first and second floor. So people just make choices. And yeah, there should be tougher building codes, there should be stronger codes so people can't get away with their stupidity and naivety thinking it's never going to happen to them. But the problem is we live in a country where everybody feels they have freedoms. They don't want people telling them what to do. Builders have a, a lobbying industry that fights to keep codes from being stronger because it makes things more expensive. I've had builders tell me, well, how do I know people will pay for it? I said, well, how about you just have some pride in your job and want to build a house that's not going to blow away when the wind is drawn? Yes. And then that can make you millions of dollars because you can advertise that you have the houses that survive. But it's tough. Yes.
2: A great part of your film was... The Habitat for Humanity homes, right? These are homes that are built by this nonprofit agency and they're built, you know, there's a program, right? I I don't know the total ins and outs of Habitat for Humanity. I built a home with a Habitat wing called Elico Design. I did one like in Tijuana once and I learned a little bit about the process, about the points and everything and how people get these homes. But in the film, you answer the question, Oh, it's too expensive. No, it's not. Because there are some things, there are some little things that you can do as cheap as somebody said, as cheap as $400 or or just doing a couple things. And they gave the example of the Habitat for Humanity homes, which are built very quickly. But these homes were the ones that were, some of them were the ones left standing in some of this catastrophe. So it's like this, is this great parallel in your movie of, no, it's, it's not always necessarily because it's too expensive, right? Habitat of Humanity has made the decision that they are going to build their homes to withstand X, Y, and Z, right? The other builders that are out there, that are we are going to build to code. We're not going to go under code because then you're not going to get a certificate of occupancy. But if you want more, you need to, that's on you, the individual. Just like the house that is the last last house standing in Mexico Beach, that individual made that individual American decision that he wanted a home that would withstand catastrophe anyone. Now, so it really does come down to the question of, the role of the government versus the role of the individual. And what kind of a country do we want to live in? Look, we're seeing this kind of played out someplace really terribly as well. Turkey, the earthquakes that occurred in Turkey, I mean, the government is government. <laughs> Turkey is not the United States of America. Uh, they're a little bit on the authoritarian side, even though they call themselves a democracy. But right now, the government is pointing the fingers at the at the builders they're saying the builders did not build up to their codes i am not an expert in turkish law i'm not an expert in turkish real estate i'm just saying right now they're, the, the fingers are getting pointed at the builders there and i haven't studied it enough to speak about it here at a bare minimum the houses the, the new houses that are built are built up to code now one point that you made in your in your film george and you kind of touched upon it here is older homes that were pre code those seem to be the ones, if I understand correctly, George, those are the ones that are really getting wiped out in these instances. Is that what you discovered?
0: Yes, that generally is the case. It's a cleansing of that neighborhood, sadly, because those houses were built years ago. Now, some houses that were built years ago are fortresses, you know, depending on where they're located. Did they use concrete? Did they use brick? Whatever they used to build that house. But built to code is really, I had an architect tell me that if a builder says to you they're building the code, I wouldn't buy the house from them. Because the idea of building something should be how it's going to last into the future. So you have to anticipate how things are going to go in the future. If you're building that house to the minimum standard, try putting that in your ad. We've built our house to the minimum standard. Bring your family. Move in. You wouldn't do it. But that's exactly what they're doing. I want the builder that says, I built this house and it's going to last for 50 years because I've thought about it the rising storm surge. I thought about all the things that could go wrong in this neighborhood and this house will survive. That's what should be in Zillow. That's what should be on realtor.com. Not look at the countertops, look at the beautiful pool in the backyard, put the things on there that's gonna make the house survive and, and let's put that stuff up front. But that's not gonna happen. If we wait for government to do it, good luck. We'll all be gone. The idea is we have to demand it. We have to say, we want better. I'm not rewarding your garbage. I want better.
1: I was going to say, fun fact, uh, Titanic was built to code. That <laughs> <Yeah, it doesn't laughs> be unthinkable. Uh, the law at the time was that a ship had to have a minimum of 16 lifeboats, and it, it was built to code. But it's a perfect example, actually, of what you're saying, is that technology outpaces existing law. I've had engineering students... Asked me, we're reading Aristotle and this question about what does it mean to be excellent? And essentially, you are what you do. And some of the engineering students were like, What if you're in a situation and you don't have to build as much as what the, the law doesn't require you to do as much? And I said, Well, if you want to be an excellent engineer, you do excellent engineering. An excellent engineer has no desire to do less than being excellent because you are what you do. If you are an engineer and you are doing less, then that is defining what kind of an engineer you are. It's as simple as that. So the reason why Aristotle wrote it in that way is because if you want to build a society of good citizens, you can't necessarily just look at the law in order to determine if you are being excellent or not. It has to do with you are very much aware of your abilities and the capacity and how to read a situation. So I think you're absolutely right. We can't just wait for the law to give us some sort of guidance here. There has to be some sort of a sense and a desire and an ambition. And how exciting would that be? I mean, especially with the fires in California when we are talking about how to build stronger, that that could be, or with earthquakes, that could be the standard around the world. That's what it could be. It's not necessarily taking away from money. It's not a deficit. It could just be ingenuity, innovation at its finest.
0: You really need a lot of things to come together for that. You know, Hank Ovink, where I found him for our film, he was on 60 Minutes and he was showing over in the Netherlands how the government stepped in and there were areas that would flood every year, and they relocated people. They bought their property and moved them somewhere else. And that is tougher to do in this country because nobody wants to be told what to do at all. You want government to bail you out, but you don't want them to tell you how to live. And so do we allow people to continue to make bad choices and bad mistakes? um, Do we allow people to if you're driving without your seatbelt on, you screwed up, but somebody's still got to come get you with the ambulance, take you to the hospital, those medical bills have to be paid. There's consequences for what everybody does. At what point is it the individual's responsibility versus the government's responsibility to help you? I know in the in the pre disaster, but when the hurricane's coming and they tell you to evacuate, they'll ask people that don't want to go to write their driver's license or social security number on their arm so they can identify their body after the tragedy, because they said, we're not coming to get you during the storm. We're not going to risk our lives. And first responders, those guys are heroes. I mean, those guys, but do you want them having to come out when there's a storm surge to try to save the guy that's drowning that should have evacuated? No. So people have to be somewhat accountable.
2: And this is a good parlay into, let's just call it the political portion of this discussion is, in my opinion, George, your film did a terrific job of both addressing climate change as a fact, and not getting into the politics of it. It was, just, it was just great. It was just, hey, things are warming. Whether or not you believe the reason why, here are the facts that the world is warming, CO2, et cetera, et cetera. I was on a podcast, a good friend of ours who's been on our show a bunch of times. She has this podcast called the Public Money Podcast. This is with Liz Farmer. And I was talking about the idea of financing climate adaption, um, adaptation. And one of the discussion points on that show, George, that I emailed you about in the middle of the night about this, is there is the politices, the politicalization of the climate resistance or changing the, our laws in order to address the climate. And, that, and it's particular in, in reds that are characterized as red versus blue. Since you're in Florida, I'm not going to pick on Florida. Right now, I'm going to pick on a Western state. I'm going to pick on Utah. I sent you an article that said there's yeah. brand new legislation seeking to end government contracts with companies engaged in, quote unquote, Boycotting. It includes an expanded list of industries and business policies. These boycotts are of fossil fuel or firearm industries by adding timber, mining, and agriculture. These bills are saying hey, if you're a bank or if you're a government contractor, and if you have policies internally about not dealing with companies that have fossil fuels or not dealing with companies that may have a Quote unquote negative impact on the environment. You can't do business in the state of Utah or the state of Florida or the state of Louisiana or the state of Texas. I mean, you know, you have your film, you have the facts that you address in the film, and there is this weird red blue thing going on in the country. Without trying to get too political, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this.
0: Well, I think you could take each side and sit them down at a table. And by the time the conversation's over, you could hate both of them because one side will tell you why you have to do something. And then you'll point out the hypocrisy of what the other side is saying and how they're living versus how they're acting. And we can't even just all agree. OK, look, let's put all that aside and let's just break it down to what do we need to do to be safe? What do we need to do to To give us the best chance of surviving. You know, if if climate change is going to wipe out the world in 500 years, what do we need to do to survive now? You know, let's break it down to what's not political. And that's why, you know, although I may identify as one party, I don't like either party. I don't like politics at all lately because nothing seems to get done that benefits us. It's just a bunch of people fighting that they leave office, all of a sudden they're millionaires because they get jobs as lobbyists or whatever they're doing. And they parlay that into a lifetime career of making money and we're still screwed. So I care more about us than them. I wish we could get all new people that would come in and and say, you know, I'm not worried about who I'm, my special interests that I have to protect because I, I represent everybody and I want to do what's best. But then there'll be the argument, well, how do you know what's best? It's tough. There's no clean answer for that.
2: No, no, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I mean, you, you would get along beautifully with one of our frequent guys, Jeff Cortese, who comes on and he, believe me, <laughs> his view of politicians is, uh, is right along with yours and then some. He, he used to be the um, number two in the FBI for public corruption. So he's really seen some stuff on both sides of the aisle. But you're right. I yeah. see what you're saying. It's like, oh, OK, you're going to ban this. You're going to ban that yet you're flying around on your jet to go to this meeting or you're going to this very expensive restaurant eating that amount of beef. You know, Did you know that beef is one of the big CO2 contributors? Uh, sorry, California farmers, but it's a fact. You know, Go take a look at it. I understand what you're saying about the balancing of the two parties. I will say that, I don't know, I guess maybe it just does come down to the individual, meaning, well, I'm going to, you drive a Tesla. I know that. I'm going to use public transportation. I'm going to change things in my life because that—that's w- what I have control over. But then some people would say, "Well, that's just—that's just not enough." Uh, you know, there's not enough Rudies in the world. There's not enough Georges in the world. There's not enough Gwens in the world. We need some kind of minimum in order to save the world. Otherwise, we're going to hell in a handbasket. So that brings the question back of the role of the individual versus the role of the government. The United States is a a wonderful experiment in individual focus versus, you know, government overregulation. And I fear that climate change affects you, whether you're blue, whether you're red, it doesn't make it make a difference. You're going to be affected by these catastrophes and you're just going to have to take it upon yourself to save your own butt. I don't know. I I, I don't know if that's anybody disagrees with that.
0: I think a lot of it, though, sometimes it depends on it depends on who's yelling at you. You know, it's like... um, uh, when somebody's yelling at me that I have to do this and then I see them go back behind their $500 million uh, on their private jet to their mansion away from everything. But they're saying, hey, let the homeless people in, but not in my neighborhood. I mean, you can find hypocrisy on any side. And that's why I think they're all hypocrites, because you could tell that story from, from a red side or a blue side and you could find people that'll be the villain. And what I'm generally finding out is I don't agree with most of them because they're not there for us. I believe they're there for themselves, and that's frustrating because that's not why you should enter office and and want to serve. It shouldn't be, hey, because when I'm done, I can uh, get this $200,000 a year consulting job for the same group that I was voting for for the last uh, six years and letting them have all their stuff. Wink, wink, I did my job. I I don't like that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I keep thinking about this idea of, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's your own stuff. Let's just say, hypothetically, like I'm in Southern California. I've got my earthquake insurance. I've got all the stuff for the fire. I've retrofitted my stuff. It still is my business if there's not stuff built up to code because if I don't have a grocery store anymore or a place of work or my students can't come, I don't have a job without my students. If there's no more, if there's like one of the towns, what was it? There was no grocery store. There was no fire department. There was no library. So even if I am taking care of my own stuff, there's all that. I do agree with you on the politics because I'm thinking, I mean, as far as like some of the backfighting, because at the end of the day, if people are in pain, it doesn't matter. And I I could see some of this kind of came up a little bit with the train derailment in Ohio. This kind of like, oh, yeah, well, you were of this political persuasion and then therefore you somehow deserve some sort of a disaster. It's like, no, no. When people are in pain, people are suffering. People's lives could be injured. It does not matter at that point, I think, who they voted for. And I think that if we get too excited about the politics behind climate change, then we'll kind of miss those moments where we need to really just take care of each other. And then we can have those debates later. That's one of the things that I would worry about is like if there's a resistance to helping somebody because, oh, you voted this particular way and then look what happened.
2: That, I I literally talked about that on the public money pod as well. It is the, politi- the politicalization of catastrophes. Let's just say when Puerto Rico was hit by some major hurricanes, there was a um, – let's just say that the federal government at that particular time didn't move as fast as it should have and it was seen as a punishment towards because there because there was a little bit of a bent at that time of who was in the white house versus what was going on at that island. Now, maybe that was maybe that was just played up by one certain side of of the media that wanted to say bad things, but there is this fear if one political party takes over, disaster aid and the quickness that disaster aid is given out could be impacted. I truly hope that that's just a crazy crazy fear. But I do fear that that, the way our country is going and and the split that we're having here, and there's going to be more disasters. What's going to happen to disaster aid going forward? And, you know, George, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
0: Well, what makes me sick, let's go back to Hurricane Sandy. And uh, there's an image that I think damaged this guy's career. Do you remember when uh, Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, met with President Obama? And I, I think he might have embraced him or something on the tarmac. And that crushed him with Republicans, because it's how dare you do that, even though the leader of the country was there to help the people of the state, and that was going on. When Biden came down here after Hurricane Ian, he met with DeSantis, it was a little icy, but those guys at least kept, you know, you could see they would keep their distance from each other. And it's like, why do we have to do this? the, the president, whoever it is, is coming to help the people of that state, and it shouldn't become a political moment, but everything with all social media, and you, anything you do is a political moment. So you have have to be careful how you react to something, how you shake somebody's hand, how you smile or look mad. I mean, we're judged by so many things. You know, the old days when it used to be just a newspaper account that would come out the next day. Now it's immediate. Look at the reaction of, uh, of this guy. Look what uh, Governor Newsom did when President Trump refused this. You know, it's like, it, it, I don't know how you turn that back. It's just really frustrating that everything has to be about
2: my side or your side. Uh, we're, we're we're not turning it back, man. I fear that it's going to be the new normal and I so I'm, I bring this up because I think that's going to affect disaster recovery. My point being, if you think the federal government's going to come in super fast and you, and funds are going to flow and everything, don't rely upon that. The politics are seeping into Disaster aid, and it's it's just it's just going to happen. I mean, so you need to take care of yourself. Like you need to have the plan in place. You need to have the disaster plans in place. You need to overpay for retrofitting or whatever you need to do. To rely upon yourself. I mean, I hate to say it, but I, that's that's what I think. I, I truly believe that. I mean, we did after the Big Ridgecrest earthquake, the seven uh, Ridgecrest is right here up north Kern County. We've really felt it in our house, and we and we saw like we noticed a crack in the foundation, or some kind of a crack. Maybe it was there before, but I went back, I checked our inspection reports, and nothing was in there. We wound up spending like eight to ten grand to retrofit the house. And if you're not getting somebody in, you know, when this kind of goes to your whole point of buyers and sellers of real estate, I mean, as a buyer of a house, You have the right to go in and inspect the house. And how much are you paying for that inspector? Are you going to pay somebody 150 bucks? Are you going to pay somebody 1500 bucks? And is that inspector looking for resilience? Or are they just looking for the bare minimum? You know, it's on you. I mean, your house is, is your biggest investment. It's your safety. It's where you raise your family. It's where you live. And that was one of the points of the film of, Look, you got to take some individual responsibility there. I mean, you really do. That was one of the takeaways I took from your film, George. I, I don't know if I'm wrong about that.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And I think it starts with the first thing is having a good understanding of where you're moving to. What are the risks here? Historically, what might happen? What are the problems? You know, if there's a dam five miles up the road from where you live, I think somewhere in your mind, you have to understand what would happen to our house if that dam broke. If you're living in an area where there's, uh, you're in LA and there's a bunch of houses above you on a hill, wow, that's a, that's a tough choice because if there's an earthquake, all that stuff's coming down or a mudslide. There's so many things that could happen or a firestorm. I grew up in Pacific Palisades in LA and we weren't built as deep into the canyons as they are now. Now, when there's a fire in those canyons, people have ventured further into the woods and are living surrounded by all these trees and all this nature. Well, guess what? that stuff burns. And when a firestorm hits your house, you better have a really good plan because there's not a lot you can do. So then you have to understand your insurance policy and you actually have to read it or have someone explain it to you. So you understand that on page 27, it says that if a major brush fire burns my neighbor's house, blows embers on mine, I'm not covered. I mean, there's all kinds of little clauses they put in there that you need to know about. Somebody needs to explain it to you or you need to read it yourself because at least you need to be as protected as possible because these disasters are going to keep happening. It's just a matter of how we survive them.
2: George, thank you for coming on. Thank you for making the film. I'm going to recommend it to anybody and everybody that I know, especially anybody buying a house, anybody interested in climate adaptation, the effects of catastrophes. It's a really great film, man. I mean, I look, I'm sure other people have said thank you for making it. Really, thank you for making it. It has made me think about my family's disaster plan that we're going to work on. So like, for all I know, you saved lives just, just by me watching that. I mean that.
0: Yes, thank you so much. My, hey, thank you for the, the kind words. People can can see the film. They can go to my website, thelasthousestanding.org, and you can watch it there. But it's also available for free on Tubi, T-U-B-I-T-V. The film's up on there, and you can watch it right now. You could go watch it. Or if you want to give a lowly filmmaker $3.99, it's available on our website. So I hope people will watch it. I think it's important for them to see it. And the next film that we're working on is going to delve deeper into how people can make sure they're living in a safe structure and what they can do and why codes aren't tougher. So, you know, I'm always thinking about this stuff and want to try to, to make things better, which is the theme of my podcast, Tell Us How to Make It Better, that Rudy, you were a guest on. And uh, that was a great episode,
2: talking about your
0: better ways for people to get to work. Appreciate you Thanks having Thanks for you. that
2: opportunity, man. I mean, I you know, if people do want to... They want to do a little part of uh, how they can affect the climate or anything. Think differently about how you get to work and how you commute. Take a listen to that episode. We're going to link that episode. George, we appreciate it. And after you make that film, if you'd like to come back on and talk about it, we're here to help pr- help you promote any way, shape, or form. We, we love cross-podcasts, uh, helping out, especially people that are trying to change lives for the better like you are, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you, George. Good is in the details is produced by Dr. Gwen Dalsky and Rudy Salon. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to Avon Inc. and E. Let the know that we sent you. If you would like to get in touch, you can email us goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. Check us out on Instagram, Pod. Take a screenshot of your favorite episode or this episode and tag us. Join our Patreon and get a shout out, get extra content, and join our book club. That's patreon.com slash goodies in the details. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Okay, until next time. Bye.